0: You have a copy of God 's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter nine this morning, Genesis chapter nine. We've been in a series over these past few months entitled Genesis Act 1. We will come to the culmination of that series in, as it is an introduction into the book of Genesis through Genesis chapter 11, and we will come to that next Sunday in our Palm Sunday celebration as a family of faith, Genesis chapter 9 is where we are this morning. When I was growing up, one of the things that was just really white noise in our car, as my mom would drive us boys to school and to our sporting events, one of the things that was just always on at our house, was this little radio player, and Miss 103 is a country music station. And so I cut my teeth literally to George Strait and that kind of country. And oftentimes... As I was asked my mom, you're like, Mom, what, what does it mean that all my exes live in Texas? And <laughs> is that really the place that I would really love to be? But um, it would be, it would, I would be interrupted because there was just at 12 o'clock, Paul Harvey would come on. And so many of you know Paul Harvey, and he had the signature voice and the signature turn of phrase, and now you know the rest of the story. Noah and the story of Noah's ark is really one of those stories that we know, but oftentimes we don't consider the, the rest of the story. We leave Noah in those places that are kind of culturally relevant for us. We leave Noah in the ark and he is safe and sound, but well, what happens after the waters recede? But we find it in the story of Genesis chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 8, the waters recede, Noah and his family step off off out of the ark. The first act that they do is an act of Noah giving a burnt offering, celebrating God's deliverance, celebrating God's hand upon them. This is an offering that is pleasing unto the Lord. We turn to Genesis chapter 9 and we have really Noah as a new Adam. The the terminology is really there's going to be a recapitulation of the original creation mandate in Genesis chapter 9. So everything that God tells to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there is a retelling and a recommissioning of Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, the first commission that we hear from God to Noah is to be fruitful and to multiply. Just as he says that, uh, in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, so there's a restatement of it, Noah and his family. There's also, just as it was with Adam and Eve, that there was a command and a commission to have dominion over the animals, to eat of the vegetation of the day. Uh, so God gives that recommissioning to Adam, or to Noah and to his family to have dominion over the animals. Just as it was in the Garden of Eden, as he says to Adam and Eve that they are created in the Imago day, They're created in the image of God. So there's going to be a warning that God gives to Noah in those early verses of Genesis chapter 9. That don't go the way of Cain, don't murder, because why? You're created in the image of God. And it comes to this culmination as he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and you're going to visually be able to see that the catastrophic flood that has come upon you, that you and your family have been saved from, will never again occur. And the way that I'm going to signify that is by this bow, this rainbow. Scholars, especially Jewish scholars, see the symbolism in that, especially in that ancient Near Eastern world, a bow would have been a warrior's weapon. A bow is something that an archer has. And so the bow is upside down where the arrow would go to heaven and not pointed down to earth. So it is a way of of God symbolizing to Noah and to everyone else that sees that, that, that things are at peace between God and the earth. There will not be that catastrophic flood again that's going to occur. And this rainbow is A visual reminder for all to be reminded of. Well, what happens next? I mean, this is this great point. This is this high point you can imagine Noah breathing a sigh of relief finally we've gotten to this place. You can imagine Noah on the spiritual high. You can imagine Noah celebrating. Well, how is he going to celebrate? Well, listen, if it wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't believe this story. But this is the rest of Noah's story. Starting in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9 verse 18 through 29. The rest of Noah's story goes like this. the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both of their shoulders, walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his one and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain, and a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and then in verse 29, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. There is a realness and there is a rawness to this story. We can decorate our rooms of our young children with Noah's ark, but but. Generally, we don't get to the drunkenness and the nudity in our vacation Bible school stories. And reason, I mean, that, I mean obviously there, there's a sense in which it, it is much easy to sanitize and to keep this story as a cozy Sunday school story without going into the rest of the story. But it is important for you to hear, Dawson, that God did not choose to edit out of his revelation the frailty of humanity. He didn't choose to give us this, this sense of, of all of the rough edges being excised out of Scripture. Actually, we get the rest of the story, and here is Noah in his drunken stupor cursing his children with a hangover the next morning. And this is Noah, first round ballot, hall of faith Noah. Hebrews chapter 11 this is Noah, and, and he joins this great lineup. Of the men of the Old Testament that are used not because they were morally perfect. And if you're considering Christianity or if you know someone who's considering Christianity, one of the hang-ups that we oftentimes think about Christianity is that I'm going to get all my act together. Then God can use me. And God is looking for a few good men and women who are going to do everything right. And that's impossible to you. It's impossible to me. The reason Jesus Christ comes to this earth is because of our moral imperfections. He saves us because we cannot live morally upright lives. And so Noah should not... Be surprising to us that he is the lead off hitter hitter in an Old Testament lineup with a lot of moral imperfections, just right after noah we 're going to get Abraham who is a liar, right after abraham we 'll get jacob who's a deceiver, right after jacob we 'll get Joseph, who is this really cocky dreamer once we get to joseph we 're going to get to egypt and we 'll get to Moses who 's a murderer, and right after moses we 'll get to David, who in the midst of his adultery, covers up this murderous plot, so all throughout the Old Testament there there's a lot of moral imperfection. So if you've messed up, if there's been a time in your life where you thought what you shouldn't have thought, if you've gone to where you shouldn't have gone, if you've done what you shouldn't have done, guess what? You are in good company. You're in biblical company. And so as we look at the rest of the story here, we begin to see that this story really is a little closer to our story than we actually might first give it credit. And what I want us to discover in this story, as we, as Luther would say, the great German reformer, that all of us in this room are both saint and sinner, all of us in this room that have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, that we are simultaneously saint and sinner, and there will be a day... When you gaze upon God in all of his perfection for an eternity where all of our imperfections will be washed away forever. And they will be burned away forever. But until that eternal day, you and I, we will be individuals who are both saint and sinner. So as we look at this story, we have spiritual highs in this story and we have spiritual lows in this story. And it's instructive for us because as we look at Noah's story, we are reminded that spiritual highs are often followed by significant bouts of temptation. That spiritual highs are often followed by significant bouts of temptation. Look again in Genesis 9. What is Noah's sin? Noah's sin is allowing God's good gift to be abused in his life. He is a man of the soul. He plants a vineyard. And sin and shame occurs not by him drinking wine, but by the abuse of God's good gift. It leads him to be uncovered in a tent. His son ends up mocking him to his two brothers. And so there is a sense, while it is not the main point of this passage, it is a point that we should not too quickly pass over. That God's good gifts can be abused in your life and in my life. And while alcohol is not condemned in Genesis chapter 9, it is the first example that we have that comes with a caution. It comes with a pretty illustrative caution of how a good gift of God can be abused and there is not a family in this room. There is not an individual in this room. There is not a a workplace in Birmingham. There there is not any part of our life that we couldn't reflect upon and see how that abuse of alcohol has come into contact with your family, come into contact with your life. There's a caution here. It's not the main point. But throughout Scripture, I mean, the Proverbs would tell us in chapter 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. We live in a culture that in a lot of ways, even within the Christian church, that fails to heed just how easily one can be led astray by this abuse. I can assure you, Noah, Didn't think that this is what was going to come when he started celebrating that one evening. Paul would say as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, Be not drunk with wine. You remember it in the King James, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And the abuse of alcohol is an abuse that has repercussions for people's careers, for people's families. There are high school students that their lives are forever altered because of what is recorded on a cell phone when that person is intoxicated. There are college students that are making life-altering decisions as as alcohol flows freely oftentimes in a culture of of 18 to 22-year-olds and beyond. And it's not the main point of the passage, but it is a point that all of us should just step back and and heed the way that this abuse can have ramifications for our family, our life, our community, and so forth. But there's a greater point, more significant point than even that little aside there. And that point is back to this place that spiritual highs are oftentimes followed by significant bouts of temptation. Noah at this place of the spiritual high finds significant and strategic temptation that accompanies it. And this is true. This is true for a church, it is true for an individual. Uh, Our our sanctuary choirs led us so beautifully in our 940 service. And what a wonderful job in our choral praise at the outset today at 11. But at our 825 service, I looked back and there were 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds. In our 825 service, our, our chapel choir was leading us. And I told them what you know. And if you're a teenager here, you need to hear this, that oftentimes the most strategic temptation in your life is going to be after the spiritual highs here at Dawson. So oftentimes it's after chapel choir tour where Satan has a target on that junior in high school. Oftentimes, it's after the disciple now that God uh, is leading that person and doing some wonderful things in their life where Satan wants to douse the fire that is a flame of God's Spirit and God's Word in that high school student's life. And it's true, not just for teenagers, but you go on a mission trip. We just had a, I had, had a, uh, a report of a group that got back from Haiti And I don't think that after every van that breaks down that Satan is messing with the transmission. But it's not surprising to me as they were coming back last night, that the van breaks down. There is something about these spiritual high points, whether it be after a mission trip, after a retreat. It's true collectively as a church. We can all give examples of when God begins to move in a church, there is always going to accompany that, the temptation of disunity and distraction in that church's life. Why is that the case? Well, all we have to do is look at Jesus himself. Luke chapter 3, Jesus is wet behind the ears with his baptism. He hears the voice from above that his heavenly father say, This is my son. And to him I am well pleased. And it is after that that Satan strategically tempts him in the wilderness. And we oftentimes come up with this interpretation that Satan is getting Jesus at his lowest point. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, but I actually, I actually think it's the opposite. I mean, this is after this significant moment of his baptism, this significant reminder that he is God's Son, a holy God, holy man, has a purpose behind him. He hears that declaration from heaven. It is not surprising that it is after this spiritual high that Satan comes to tempt. And so, no, be alert in your life, our life as a collective church, that the darts of Satan oftentimes are strategically used, not in spiritual lows, but after spiritual highs. It's a corollary point. While we see in Noah's life something that happens after a spiritual high, we we also see the effect of a spiritual low. And that's the final point that I want us to see in this passage here, that spiritual lows often leave a ripple effect of consequences. You just can't read this story without seeing that Noah's impulsive decision and the abuse of this good gift has a ripple effect that not only affects his nuclear family, but is going to affect his family down the road, his grandchildren, even those that are not even there. Why was Canaan cursed? You can miss this and the details of this, but, but Canaan's not the one who sees his grandfather uh, in uncovered in the tent. It's Ham. And Ham's fourth son is Canaan. So the questions begin to pile up as we're reading Genesis chapter 9. Why does Noah curse his grandchild because of his son's issue? And then we begin to say, well, what is the issue? What did Ham do? I mean, it just seems as if, you know, Noah's dad does something he shouldn't do here. And in the midst of being uncovered in the tent, he happens upon him. So why is this a sin? What is the issue? Why does a curse come? That's another question that comes at this text. And then when you come at this text, you know you have a whole interpretation and a history of interpretation that has come around this text. You know Genesis chapter 9 has been a text that has been taken out of its context and used as a proof text that then was a pretext for one of the most horrendous misuses of the Bible to justify the institution of slavery in the Edimbellum South and across, across many places. That this, this passage that we're reading right here, and it's a good reminder that Satan oftentimes uses texts out of their context, and they become pretexts for all kinds of, of horrendous interpretations, and we just need to stop and just say, this is not what this passage is about. Well, then what is it about? So Ham's sin is the question. Ham's sin, And so his sin is not that he saw his father Noah uncovered, but rather it's, it's right there at verse 22 and trying to understand what is going on in verse two, 22, contrasting his response to his brother's response. If you look at verse 22, you note that Jewish and Christian interpreters look at verse 22 and see that he goes out, Ham does, and he tells his brothers of his father's shame and that he's uncovered in the tent. And notice the response of the brothers. They go immediately in. They cover and they do it in a way where they're not looking at him they they come in backwards and so most interpreters of this passage say that this is one of the first examples of an individual breaking one of the ten commandments here explicitly and that is to not honor your father and your mother that ham in the way goes out and he mocks his father In the midst of his shame. And his brothers are trying to honor their father. And so that is the sin that occurs. But we still insist, Boy, that's a lot of punishment for this son's sin that's going to be passed down to his children, Noah's grandchildren. That's not fair. And you know something? You're exactly right. The effects of sin are not fair. My sin, your sin, our sin, it will affect people that did not have a single thing to do with our decision. That that all of our decisions have this kind of ripple effect in life. That, That sin is never stagnant. It always seeps. It always spreads. It has tentacles. I don't know if you saw the, the movie rendering, we saw it yesterday, the, A Wrinkle in Time, where, where we saw the, the wonderful book that's been set. And, and there's a lot of differences between the book and the movie. But one of the things the book does really well is it, it shows sin, as it's described as the evil of it. And it just spreads out in this... Oprah montage to all of these different people and you see the way that evil it it gets to people's self confidence it gets to the familial relationships of a father and a son and it just spreads sin always seeps it does in the workplace a scandal that's trying to be covered up between one person and another person it always affects co-workers it always, even at times, affects stockholders. Sin in a family. It doesn't just affect a, a spouse, but it affects children. It doesn't even affect, affect just children, but it affects grandchildren. And the whole dynamic and direction of a family tree is oftentimes decided in the moments of our decisions. What a person looks at in private, it affects the way that person treats people in public. Sin is never stagnant. Its consequences spread and they seep. When I was a young boy, one of the things that I did uh, when I would go visit my father and we would go and around some of my cousins and some of my uncles had these big catfish farms and one of the things that we would do at times was we would be out there with just my cousins and we would be playing games and one of the games that we played many of you have done this if you've grown up around uh, you know ponds and those kinds of things you get a rock and you try to skip it across that pond or that lake and if you could get you don't want to get one that's too heavy because you'll get one skip out of that because it's going to sink but you don't want to get one that's too light so you got to get the you got to have a real precision there's you go to school for this you know and And you could skip it four or five times. I was just never really good. It required too much precision, too much practice. And so I was the oldest of... I had two younger brothers, and then I had cousins. And I just happened when we were out there on the weekends, I'd be the oldest. And so I would would change the dynamic of the game. And we'd go from skipping rocks to throwing the biggest stones that we could find into the pond and then the game was how far would the ripples go out and whoever would have the furthest ripple effect would win the game. And so I would find, you know, the biggest stone I could find, heave it up on my shoulder and then just toss it into that pond and just see the ripples go out. And in your life and in my life, we are heaving stones of decisions that have a ripple effect for those who are closest to us and who come after us. That, that we leave a wake of influence to those we know and even to those we, we don't know. At the, the, all of our decisions, and oftentimes it's positive. I mean, think about this, Dawson. You are sitting in this room largely because someone had a positive influence in your life. We could praise God for the wake of influence of a godly mother or a godly father that you saw praying, that brought you to church, and you heard the gospel, and you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. We could think about some of you in this room that that live close to a church and you walk to that church and it was a godly Sunday school teacher that took you in and loved you or, or maybe a teacher or a coach. I remember the first time I heard the gospel clearly presented it was an eighth grade social studies teacher and football coach. And I praise God for the influence of men and women that are represented in this room. And if if every one of you had this mic right here and you walked up here, you could say, I thank God for the influence. And you would name teachers, mothers, fathers, grandparents, coaches, Sunday school teachers. And we praise God for the wake of influence. And I think it's important for us to be reminded that we are actually sitting in this sanctuary because of the wake of influence of people that in 1920 took a huge step of faith and said, we are going to establish Edgewood Baptist Church. And so we are here because of the ripple effect of individuals from decades ago, almost a a century ago. But on the flip side of that, while our ripples can create a positive wake, our ripples also can create a negative wake. And it is important for us to understand because Satan wants to sell you the lie that when you sin, it's only about you. He wants to remove from your vocabulary the, the plural corporate pronouns. He, he, uh, he only wants you to think that your sin is about you. It's my right, my decisions, my life. And he doesn't want you to see, because he's the ultimate deceiver, he doesn't want you to see that there is a Canaan that is affected by my decisions. That, that there's an our and there's a we and there's an us that is affected by the ripple effects ...of your decisions and my decisions. And Noah is living in the midst of that in Genesis chapter 9... I love this about Noah's story because in Genesis chapter 6, we hear him described as blameless, righteous, upright. He does everything that God commands. And then we get after this tremendous spiritual high to Genesis chapter 9 and he's in this drunken stupor in the midst of his nudity and there is ripple effects that are going to affect all of his grandchildren and there's something instructive for all of us to hear because we vacillate as believers between Genesis 6 and Genesis 9. That no matter how many faithful steps that we take, we 're never immune to temptations that will have lasting consequences when we heed them and give in to them. But there is good news. For any of you in this room that have traveled down the road of Genesis 9. There's good news for any of you in this room that are traveling down the road of Genesis chapter 9. There's good news for any and every one of us that are here today. That are in the midst of hearing the siren song of temptation. Calling us to heed and to follow. And that good news is, is there is never a time that is too late for you. Well, for you to turn around. If you travel from Mobile, Alabama to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you're going to be on Highway 98. And it's always interesting to me, if you are traveling and you go through Mobile, let's just say you're going back from Orange Beach, you've got relatives that live in Hattiesburg, you've got to go to the University of Southern Mississippi. If you're traveling down 98, I don't know exactly what mile marker it is, but after you get out of Mobile, maybe it's 15 miles, maybe it's 20 miles, but you'll see a big sign as you're going into Mississippi that says Mobile. And then under Mobile, there is a U-turn sign. It is this way of saying, if you are trying to go to Mobile, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. Right now. And what always strikes me about that sign is, is I think to myself, who in their right mind could be traveling this far, going to Hattiesburg, and not realize that they're going in the wrong direction? But we've all done that. We, we've all gone 20 miles down the wrong road, headed in the wrong direction. And aren't you thankful that God puts signs at every mile marker of your poor decisions, my sinful decisions, reminders to say that no matter what you thought, it's not too late for you to turn around. No matter where you've gone, there's still a way for you to turn around. No matter what you've seen, no matter where you've gone, no matter what decision you've made, no matter how many miles you've traveled down the Genesis 9 of your life, that you, through the power of His Holy Spirit, and through the grace and mercy and love and compassion of our Heavenly Father, you too can turn around. Which direction are you traveling in? Direction of obedience that will have a wake of influence that is positive to you, to those who are close to you and those who come after you? Are you traveling down a Genesis 9 road that will have negative ripples for you and for those around you and those who come after you? What stones are we throwing into the pond of our life? Stones of obedience as stones of obedience disobedience. Thank you, God, that no matter how far in the wrong direction that we go, we're never, never out of your sight, and never do we travel out of the ability to turn around. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts. I pray that all of us will be reminded of the wonderful gospel truth that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. And there's some of us in this room that are struggling with little things that have crept up in our lives, that have us on a path that cumulatively is a path of disobedience, and, and it wasn't even a volitional decision, it, was just, it just seeped into us, and we see that we've gotten pretty far down the road out of your perfect will for our lives. There are some of us that we've seen the signs of temptation, and, and we've driven longing to go further and further and further in, further in the wrong direction. May today be a day that we hear you calling us to turn around, to come back to your plan, to your way. May we realize that your grace, your compassion, your love, your mercy, it follows us no matter how many miles we go in the wrong direction, that you still desire to call us home. So in your name we pray compassionate, grace-filled name of Christ. Amen.